And the Lord is good and he does good. And so we're going to talk about this subject, wokeness, denying God. Um, in one sense, you could have even titled it um, uh, an unbiblical worldview and how it denies God. So I'm going to tie, if you will, the wokeness movement to that and then propose to you that there are ways in which it is de- a denial of God. And when I say a denial of God, uh, there are people who may claim to have a knowledge of God or say that they have a relationship with God, but not the biblical God of Scripture, not God has given me these talents and these abilities. And sometimes people make these statements, and they are praising God for certain things that God had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with, nothing at all. God did not possibly um, help you um, create those lewd lyrics. God did not possibly help you direct that uh, movie that undermines biblical principles. You're deluded. But that's what happens with the mind that is without Christ. Paul says that we once walked in the futility of our mind. And futility means what? The vanity of, my, of our mind, the foolishness of our mind. And so people can make foolish decisions, and they don't even recognize it as such. Uh, they think that it's, uh, it's a viable choice. They think that it's a reasonable option, but it's not that at all. So we need to understand man and his, there's almost like this insipid desire to reject God and biblical authority. And why is that so? Because man is without Christ, and man without Christ has no desire to be with the living God. All of us at some point in time, now some of us in varying ways, before you came to the Lord, um, you were striving for the things of the world in certain degrees. And some of us, and I mentioned this even two weeks ago uh, in my workshop about some of us have a history before you came to Christ. Some of you, particularly if you came to the Lord early in life, maybe you're around a Christian environment, you're sort of raised around the church, and at some early stage in life, the Lord opened your eyes and you saw Christ. That's a wonderful thing. Um, but some of you, later in life, you came to the Lord, so you came with that, you, you brought with that memories and even sometimes habits, but by God's grace, um, he sanctifies us, doesn't he? And we sh- should all be thankful for that. So man without God is futile, and man may think that he's serving God, but he really isn't. And you'll find people in the woke movement that will say, oh, surely we are following the Lord. Now, I'm going to admit to you, it's difficult um, at times always to, you know, give a clear, clear, um, universally accepted definition, particularly of something like this. Um, If right now, if I were to stop and say, what is your definition of wokeness? I would think that we might get several definitions. And, and I would think probably all of them might be acceptable. As a matter of fact, let's do that. Stop for a moment. And uh, you can just use a booming voice so we don't have to spend time with the microphone. Um, uh, if you were to say, what is wokeness, what might you say? So automatically, wokeness is automatically critical race theory. Okay, what might you say? Wokeness is what? Uh, Wokeness is victimhood. So automatically when we think being woke, uh, it is going to brand itself perhaps, and it's going to propagate the idea of being a victim. And there's an oppressor uh, that is creating a society and environment that victimizes me. What else when you hear wokeness? Denies reality. Denies reality. Oh, we've gone really far now. 
What's that? Empathy. empathy. So wokeness can be empathy. Social justice. Identity politics. All of those things associated with it. So we can say, say for instance, this last couple of terms that I heard, empathy. So woke from the standpoint of I look at society and I say they are surely injustices in society. No one can deny that. Uh, if you were to deny in society, then what? You're not looking. You're, you're pretending. You're not living in the world in which um, is a reality. You speak about reality. How many of you, and I don't want to have you raise your hands because I'll just tell you what I did. I saw uh, The Sound of Freedom, the movie. And of course, um, difficult to get through at times, but you know that here is a reality. Your heart goes out to children and obviously women that are more than children trafficked. Um, and surely you have some empathy for them. You're sympathetic towards it. You have to have that if you're going to be a Christian. I mean, if you look at something like that and you can look at it with indifference, something is surely wrong with you. Something is not computing. Do you understand? Don't say that you're a Christian and be indifferent to something like that. And what if a person, say for instance, says, you know what, that stirred me so much, I think I'm going to be involved um, in actually giving my time and efforts towards fighting against it. Um, Some could say, because terms are interesting, oh, you've gone woke. Really? How have I gone woke? By caring for the innocent, true victims, true victims. How is that wokeness? But we can categorize things this way. Um, I heard reality, of course, because now we're getting into a biblical worldview. That's actually one of my key words. And when we talk about what is a biblical worldview, reality, how do we see the world itself and how it operates and what determines how we should function and behave in the world? Yeah. What else um, when it comes to... Uh, there's an attack on the nuclear family at times. That can be a part of the movement itself. Absolutely. Uh, can support cultural Marxism. Yeah, most definitely it can. I think that there are, and if anyone's ever heard me um, talk before or even in Anchored when it comes to terms... I tend to want to pause before a definition is just readily given. Because right now, if I were to ask you this question, let me just give you an example of something. Why do I say that? If I were to say, if you were to um, talk about contemporary, the contemporary church, what does that mean? Well, we get different definitions in here. Even if I said, what about contemporary music? What's contemporary music? Would we get different definitions in this room? I'm going to give you the answer. Yes, we would. And some of those, if I stop right now and said, what is liberalism? There should be a core that we would all share as to the definition, but there's going to be variance, if you will, in how we understand something like that. Or if we go back to, I heard, social action or social injustice uh, or, um, yeah, Social justice. I think it's a term uh, that has been hijacked. And what do I mean by that? Hijacked because, let me say this plainly, I said it to students uh, as well. I've had a number of conversations with people about it. Is this. Let's start here. Do we believe that God is a God of justice? Okay. Absolutely. 
So now the question is, where is justice enacted? Where, where is it fleshed out? Where is it applied? Where do we apply justice? So let's pause for a moment before you even answer that. Then what would be an example of enacting justice in, in the world today? And there's, there's differences in scales uh, that's unacceptable before the Lord. Uh, what else might be an example of an injustice? Human trafficking, surely. Um, you, you, you're not quite human if you disagree with that. Um, human trafficking. That's an injustice. So the, the counter to that is going to be, this is something that we need to stop and use resources to combat it. Um, but always going back to gospel transformation, because in my mind, looking at something like child trafficking, that is so, so very dark. So dark. Um, are there resources that could be pulled in order to combat it? I'm sure there are. But in the heart of man, that you would even think that that's a behavior that's acceptable, uh, only gospel transformation is going to cure that. What else might be an injustice? That maybe something you've seen in the Bible. What have you seen in the Bible that would say it would be an injustice? Um, well, yeah, that absolutely. Um, to slaughter a human being surely is. What else? Joseph and his brothers in injustice, jealousy and jealousy acted out and, and harming him. Absolutely. Um, the scripture does, does talk about the poor, does it not? Let's, here's an example. Let's just go here now. Um, look with me at um, Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 10. Now, uh, the book of Isaiah, we have some major parts of the book since the social justice came up, um, and justice by itself. Um, Isaiah, major parts. So chapters 1 to 39, uh, this, we'll call this the Assyrian episode. Uh, the northern tribes are wicked, they're vile, and God says that I'm going to punish you, and God punishes them with whom? The Assyrians come, right? So now we go from 39 into 40. The southern tribes have not learned from their northern brothers. And God says, I'm going to punish you. And he does it with whom? The Babylonians come. And why? He says, here are some of the main reasons that you're going to be punished is the great injustices that you show one another amongst you. And one such example is, is here. Notice in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, woe to those who enact Evil statues. Now, statues. So now we have what? What are we thinking here? Things that are enacted in society, are they not? But he says they are evil. And those who constantly record unjust decisions, unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of what? Of justice and to rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil, and that they may plunder the orphans. And then he says, because of this, this has come to my attention. And obviously when we use the language come to his attention, means that now God is saying, you must be punished for it. Then he says in verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Assyrians are going to be my rod. But he says, there's also a woe on you. I'm going to punish you although you're punishing an evil people. 
Uh, that's God's great sovereignty and how he can, in his own mind, reconcile uh, those two, truth, two truths. So here, the poor, their evil statues, their unjust decisions, the rights of my people have been robbed. The widows, you've robbed. The orphans, you've mistreated. So um, what has happened over the last so many years when we think about social justice, I still see it as a hijacked term because when we just plainly apply justice, it must, it must take place in a context. In a context. What's the context? The context is society. The context is a community. The context is a neighborhood. So if you were to say, I believe in social justice, now today's saying that we do have to understand, I mentioned the word context a number of times, we have to understand the use of words in a given context, right? Because there are certain things that we could have said 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. If you say them today, people might look at you sort of oddly, right? Do you all agree on that? And some of you maybe aren't old enough to know how terms have changed, but some terms have changed. Can anyone think of a term that was acceptable at one point, but now it's not? Okay, two things, yeah, that is not really, doesn't have much history to it, um, but I understand what you're saying. But yeah, just simply put, I mean, I, what was it? some commercial, I remember, said we're going to have a gay old time. Um, and in some context, you can still use that, if you will, but not anymore. There was a point in time to actually refer to someone as queer was a pejorative, but now it's acceptable. If you refer to someone as queer, oh, they're queer. And it was something, hey, you can't say that. That's mean-spirited. But now queer is an accepted term. And as a matter of fact, a term of almost um, endearment um, to certain people. Terms change. We know that. Social justice, justice has to have a home. It's not just a concept that floats around. God is looking at his people and said, in society right now, you are being unjust. Now, you back away from it and you say, well, but understand, context, context, context. Uh, those are the three words, the first three words that I learned in seminary, really, was context, context, context. So now I understand. So in one sense, you have to concede certain ideas because you realize how people may interpret what you're saying. But overall, it shouldn't frighten you. Because if one were, were reading um, the scriptures 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and you would think, oh, yeah, there must be justice in our society. And I, you should be able to say that today without it being associated with a particular movement. Now, um, I said it's subjective of terms. Its application is based on expectations of the individual Engaged in exchange or observation. That is, how we understand woke and what it means to be woke will change at times from person to person. But I'm going to give it a definition. I'm going to have to give it one, and, and it's necessary. Um, and I think you would say there are people who would say that they're woke who are sensitive to the injustices in the world and the church. And, and they see the proposed cause and effect. They say, well, I'm woke because I can look around and see what's happening around me. 
my eyes are not closed to reality. And they would say, that means that is wokeness for them. Out of this conversation, if you have that conversation somewhere else, it may be interpreted differently. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? Do you understand what I'm saying? At any point in time, raise your hand and say, can you clarify that or slow down a little bit or restate that? No problem whatsoever. Okay, do we understand that? And I would say I'd give you a book if you did it, but I don't have any more. So to be woke, if you will. Um, The woke movement is not merely a social construct or philosophical system. It is another religion for many because of its commitment to its tenets. And at times it will propose a different gospel. Um, You say, is that a bit too much? I don't believe that it is. If we look at the undergirdings of the movement itself. And let me make this statement. I do believe that there are people who can be caught up in a movement who don't fully understand the implications of a given movement. Okay? Um, That's why even someone will... I've had this conversation for decades now and say, well, that person, that's a charismatic church. Okay, but hold on. What do you mean by that? I always ask people that. And the reason I say, I ask, give me your definition of what you mean by a charismatic church. Let's pause again. I think the time will will allow us. Let's pause again. When you think charismatic church, what comes to mind? Okay, tongues, Benny Hinn, right? Seeking revelation outside of scripture. What else may come to mind? What's that? Yeah, we said that. Um, Prosperity gospel, right, comes to mind. Would that come to mind? Okay, Um, is that always the case in every church? No, thank you. Great answer, everyone. Great answer. It's not. But sometimes we'll say, well, because they go to that church, and wait a minute, they raise their hands. Oh, my. You know, to that music. Oh, my. It sounds like what they do in the college department, but now it's in the main service. They've gone charismatic. (laughs) Next thing you know, um, Kenneth Copeland is going to be showing up, right? That's not necessarily the pathway, people. Understand that. Because there are people who say, yeah, that's a charismatic church. And what does it mean for them? It's how they express themselves. It's their their style of music itself. Um, But they are not full in on the health, wealth, prosperity, perversion. Or even when they say, well, Um, that that person is, say, for instance, a false teacher. I hear that a great deal. What do you mean by a false teacher? What makes an individual a false teacher? And you need to distinguish between a false teacher and a poor teacher. There are differences. Do you understand that? If you look at biblically, what is a false teacher? Well, we know that consistently a false teacher is someone that there's moral inconsistency, although it may not be visible, God is saying it's true of them. They are sort of like Jude says, they're sort of the clouds without rain. Um, There's going to be doctrinal deviation in some major way that makes them a false teacher. However, there are people who are poor teachers, and they're not necessarily a false teacher. We have to distinguish even in that, because right away I hear someone say, oh, he's a false teacher. Why? And often I hear a pause. Okay, but tell me why. Why are they a false teacher? What doctrine 
deviation has, has taken place. So terms are very important that we understand them. Cultural Marxism. And so what is cultural Marxism attempting to achieve? Uh, this medium between what? Capitalism and genuine socialist Marxism, which is a failure on every level. But ultimately, it's somehow how we can reshape the culture. We want to reshape the culture. And this is what we see happening today. And I don't believe that everyone that may be involved in some aspect of what may be called the woke movement it wants to be a part of some cultural coup, if you will. But sometimes people can be caught, they can be caught up in something and just unawares. So what, do I believe there is an element of cultural Marxism in the woke movement? Absolutely, because I think it's seeking to change the culture. Are there varying degrees of people in the woke movement? Absolutely, just like with any movement there will be. I think there are people who fully understand their objectives and there are people who are long for the ride. The people, if you ask them, what are the real tenets behind it that they could not articulate them? And the others that fully understand the tenets and they espouse it and they have an objective in mind. So we are, I think, in the midst of a, a cultural battle where there are movements among us where it is, seeping, it is seeking to reshape culture. And that's what we're going to talk about later on, and it, it, it's going to affect these 10 areas. I saw a hand up. Um, can we get another mic here? Would that be helpful? Okay, great. There we go. Yes. When it comes to definitions of like charismatic, depends on where you are. Sure. Because that's right. We met years ago, uh, Pentecostal during the Olympics. We housed a, a coach from France, and Pentecostalism in France and England is somewhat different than in the states. And so it depends on where you are regarding definitions of. Oh, sure. I mean, there are people that I know right now that people I know that are Pentecostal churches or there are people I know are part of what may be called holiness churches. And they by no means would believe in some of the perversion of the Kenneth Copelands and those extreme examples. Exactly. Um, Not at all. But we can tend to brand everyone together and we need to be a bit more cautious. And I think when we do that, that makes our argument better. And it gives us inroads that we may not necessarily have had. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, and, and the reason when we think about cultural Marxism is because its underpinnings, its foundation, its worldview is contrary to a biblical worldview. Um, it's about cultural transformation. And that cultural transformation, in one sense, you say, well, aren't Christians about cultural transformation? We're about cultural influence, absolutely. Christians should want to influence every aspect of our culture. And how do we do that? Because Jesus Christ said that we are the what of the world? Yeah, we're the light, we're the salt. And we take that salt into the world, and you can influence your workplace. Uh, you can impl- influence the places of your w- recreation. Uh, you can influence the school. Um, I've well, think about it this way. Um, I was just took place in a great event yesterday. Um, she's now a new coach um, at um, the TMU track team. Um, and I've 
five kids, two of my sons are Marine officers. And um, one of the, the, the Scott's daughters, Eliana, um, she just graduated from, she went to Cal Poly uh, studying applied mathematics. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and now she just went to what's called OCS, or Officers Candidate School, and she was commissioned. So my one son flew out, who's now captain, and he commissioned her, and that was a great moment. You know, to see that moment take place as he commissioned her as an officer, now as a second lieutenant, you know, in, in the Marine Corps. But there's something about the Marine Corps. It has a certain reputation, obviously, for hard-fighting men, but it also has a reputation of womanizing and cursing and drinking and other things like it, although the commandant has tried to address it. But it's a part of the culture. And my two sons, and now Eliana, are, you know, they're off, and what I'm saying to them you can influence the culture. Because my two sons, they went through officer's candidate school. They went through what's called the basic school. They were selected um, to go through infantry officer school, which only 50% of you get through it. So they're kind of known as tough guys. And I said, but yeah, use that to your advantage because they're respected. But I hear stories where they'll say, Hargrove, like, why don't you like want to go out in Hargrove? Why don't you... Hargrove, I don't hear you swearing. Hargrove, you don't talk about women the way we talk about women. Exactly. So he can have influence in that part of culture, need I even say society, to live differently, to say that you can behave in a different way. You can still be someone that's a fighter and tough, and here is your warped definition of masculinity, that it isn't quite true. Um... So we are a people that are called to have an influence of those around us. Do we agree with that? Salt and to be that light. And cultural Marxism is saying we want to influence, but obviously it is a secularization that wants to take place. Sometimes it's overt and sometimes it's very subtle. And I think overall we know that sometimes the subtle things are the things that can take root because we're not noticing it. We're not noticing the change. I mean, how do we get to the point where we are now? How, how do we get to the point where we, I, I check into a flight and I'm going over my passport information and I put in my date and then they come to gender and now I have five options. <laughs> that wasn't, and I travel a lot. Some of you know that I wasn't doing that like three years ago or four years ago. It was male, female. Now I go in, it's male, female, X, Y, other, prefer not to state. And even, I've, I've gone to some, it's even been more than that. How did that happen? Yeah, it's a cultural shift. Yeah, that's what's going on around us. And that wasn't true. If you would have asked my parents and my grandparents, they would say, boy, you've lost your mind. <laughs> I told them, what, they, what are you talking about? Is it, there is, there's something beyond male and female. There is not. But here's the thing about it. I've, you have to have also a heart of compassion because you realize that people are caught up in it. Every Tuesday night in Anchor, we have a prayer gathering by, via Zoom, and we pray for um, our key leaders every night. Because I think about God's punishment upon their souls because they've led so many people astray. And so-called preachers who don't want to speak the truth in love. 
So instead of helping people confuse, um, now we become their advocates. It's quite sad. Um, let's move ahead. What is a biblical worldview? Um, a worldview was something that was initially espoused by Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher, sort of the key thinker in the Enlightenment time, and a worldview, how we see society around us. And now we have what we would say is a Christian worldview. How do we navigate through society? How do we make decisions about life itself? And we need to do it, obviously, with a biblical underpinning. And so here's a definition. We say a worldview compromises one's collection of presuppositions, convictions, and values from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the world and life. So I have certain presuppositions. What is a presupposition? Um, I go into an argument. Uh, let's think about it from an apologetic standpoint. I have presupposed, I believe, that there is a God and that there is absolute truth. That is a presupposition that I have. Uh, when it comes to when we think about our values, those values are obviously going to be derived from what we believe about Scripture and what we believe about God, and therefore they become our convictions, the things that we're willing to die on, and the things that we must be willing to die for. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. You're going to hear some of you that may see the essential movie tonight about, um, you're going to learn a little bit if you haven't already about the Covenanters. Um, and people that were willing to die for their convictions. And we see that throughout history, do we not? People that are saying, I believe in these tenets, I believe in these absolutes, and I'm willing to lose my life for them. Right now, if, um, and I don't want to frighten you with the thought, but it is the reality in some places around the world. If someone came in right now armed, because they hated Christianity and began to take our lives and they said, denounce Christ and you may leave. I would think that all of us would say, no, I will stay. I believe this. Nash in Faith and Reason Searching for a Rational Faith said, it's a conceptual scheme by which we interpret and judge reality. That was said even earlier. What is reality? How do we define it? How do we interpret it? And then we have to determine then what guidelines, what principles will we use to interpret it? So I ask your question. When you study the Bible, um, do all of us have to have a, uh, what, what should I say, a consistent approach to studying the Bible so that we can come up with the same conclusion? We do, don't we? Uh, what's the word that's used for the interpretation of studying Scripture? Herme- hermeneutics, right? Um, how many of you studied hermeneutics before? Okay, good. You may have studied it like in school, or you may have studied it here at Grace Church, or maybe one of the men here have done a series on hermeneutics. So these principles that guide us through the interpretation of Scripture, and if your principles are different than another person, you can go to the same passage and draw what? Very different conclusions, can't you? Going back to, you may have, for instance, the extreme charismatic movement, and they look at the idea of healing, and when they interpret anything that has to do with healing, they would say what about the Christian life? Well, it's, it's guaranteed. You can be healed. It's God's intention that you be healed. 
and go beyond healing. They can look at certain scriptures and say, God wants you to have wealth because as you have wealth, that's when you really become a light to the world. And that's when you really become salt to the earth because the world will look at you and say, wow, look at how the king takes care of his children. I want that. But is that what God said? No. He says, they hated me, therefore they do, will do what? They will hate you as well. The scripture is clear. What did Paul say to Timothy? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will find difficulty in life. I mean, the Christian history finds itself strewn with the blood of people who have been martyred for the faith. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I have an image in my head right now that's bothering me because I'm thinking about these, these girls that held their faith and were drowned to death while they were tied to a pole and the tide was coming in slowly. And they were asked to denounce their faith as the older one was in front. And they thought, well, if the older one denounces her faith, then perhaps the younger one will because she'll say, well, if she gave way, perhaps I should give way. But she did not. And imagine that you're tied to a stake and the, short, the tide is coming in and it's filling further and further. No. Utterly ridiculous. Not in any way biblical. But if that's how you interpret scripture, you can go to a similar, a same passage and walk away with the illusion. And so our worldview is going to help us say, what is reality? How do we interpret it? How do we live? And then it's also this, uh, an explanation and interpretation of the world and um, application of this view to life. So here's the world, and now how do I apply this? If I say that there is a divine being, if I say that there's purpose in life, then what will it look like? How will I actually live? That's the question for us. And it's um, in his famous work, and series, and if I, if I give you a name, Francis Schaeffer, what thought comes to mind? Labrie, oh, absolutely, right? And then how shall we what? Then live. If these things are true, if these presuppositions are true, then now what effect will they have on me in everyday life? And that's why Christianity is that. It is not just conceptual. It is not just intellectual. So we take these truths and we say, now, what impact should it have on my everyday decisions in life? Uh, it's terribly practical. It's not pragmatic. There's, there's, there's a difference in that. It's terribly practical. So we take our great theology, we ask ourselves the questions of our theology, what does it mean for me, and now we live. This is what Paul says throughout a particularly Pauline approach to even his letters, does he not? And what does he do in his letters um, Paul would say, here's your doctrine, and then Paul would say what? Now this is how you should live. And this is the call for us. Then this comes up. View, then it will answer the questions of life, uh, the origin of life and its implications. So if we understand properly, what is the origin of life? That's an implication how we answer that question. So if I go back and say, some people may say, even in Christian circles, um, a six-day creation and seeing God as the creator of all things isn't terribly 
absolutely important for us. What would you say to that? Can we? Is it essential or not? Would you? Oh, come on now. <laughs> is it essential or not? Say ye what? What? <laughs> yes, it is. Because the moment you say you question the origin of life, you can question now their implications to that thought. Therefore, if I did, if I weren't, so, let me pause. Therefore, um, if I'm not created by a divine being, if I'm not an image bearer, then I make other decisions in life. It has implications in all ways. Uh, it is since, not if. What do I mean by that? Several things. Since I'm created by a divine being, therefore. I'm created by a divine being, therefore I have a responsibility to him. It is since there is divine revelation. So since there is divine revelation, that means that my life must be in accord to that revelation. But if there is no divine revelation, we can discover truths ourselves as a society. But no, it can't be that way. Society must be guarded by these um, divine truths. And then since there is an absolute moral standard. There is an absolute moral standard which is revealed in God's word. Therefore, since there is an absolute moral standard, then we do ask the question, how shall I then live? When Paul says, here is Christ and here is God and here is your faith, now walk worthy of your calling. These truths are here, therefore. That's how we have to understand it. Since I am an image bearer, let me pause there. So fill in the Fill in the thought there. What's the therefore? Since I'm an image bearer, what in society? How does this impact decisions for a society? If I'm in, what is an image bearer? Let's, pa- let's back up a little bit. An image bearer is what? Someone tell me. What's that? Okay. Um, I'm develop with a sense of moral standards. Now, those moral standards will be violated and suppressed via Romans chapter 1, right? So you suppress the truth. God has placed in man some sense of his laws, but what does man do? He suppresses the truth in all unrighteousness. And as an image bearer, that means that my life is precious. Now, the preciousness of life um, is an argument in a major societal, cultural battle. Where do you think that takes place? Planned what? Parenthood. Because now we have a clash of cultures, do we not? And we have a clash of cultures because of a beginning point. If I don't see myself as an image bearer, then life is not as precious. That's what we need to understand. And it's this. Since there is an eschatological plan, what? Now we come back to hope. There is an eschatological plan. God's plan is, in fact, unfolded. Great things about a a trip to uh, Israel that we took, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, and I'll mention it again if you heard it again. I'm sorry. It's still a great thing to you. Um, We're at the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is, in fact, that. Uh, It's great for, you know, the skin and things like that, but it's dead. No life that's in there, no fish in there at all. and what's great about it, something is going to take place. Jesus Christ is going to come again. Uh, being on the Mount of Olives is a great experience. Christ is going to come. Zechariah tells us this. 
the, uh, the Kidron Valley is going to be split, and this is beginning a cycle of God renewing the earth. The earth itself is going to enjoy this refurbished, renewed sense about it. And one thing that's going to happen, uh, Ezekiel 47 tells us that from the Kidron Valley, now this water is going to be flowing, and it's going to make its way to the Dead Sea. And what's going to happen to the Dead Sea? Will it remain dead? What are your votes in here? No, it will not. It says it's going to be teeming with all sorts of fishes in the Dead Sea. And to be at the Dead Sea and to see fish in this place? No way. How can it be? Well, it can be because God has an eschatological plan. And that that is a part of my worldview that then affects how I live. If Jesus Christ is, in fact, going to come back, if his feet will, in fact, sit Stay, um, be on the Mount of Olives, if the Kidron Valley will in fact be split, if all the religion that's presently on the, ter- the Temple Mount is going to be destroyed and a new temple is built, and then from that, the earth itself is going to be renewed and Christ would literally reign on the earth itself and there's going to be a reward system for those who have been faithful, some over ten cities and five and some over one. That affects my life. That's hope. See, but an unbiblical worldview is saying hope is in this life and this life only. So we must make society as best it can be so you can have the best life now. Because then it's over, friends. Because it really is eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Yeah, but for us, it is not eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. Uh, We eat of the word of God, we live life, and tomorrow we may die, but then life begins. Amen? That's when it all begins. That's the reality. So that affects how I live life. There is an eschatological plan. And it is also this. There is divine providence. What is bringing this all about? There is a providential God. What is providence? It is God's particular way that he is unfolding his sovereign plan in life. And this is why we say there is never anything that's just happenstance. Oh, I just happened upon you. No, providentially it occurred. I mean, um, I got up super early like this morning um, just because of scheduling and looking over some things. And, and who, who knows it? You know, I, and I, I forget even how I came across Owen's um, message about today was the day that, you know, two years ago he produced or this book and encouraged him in it. And I thought about God's providence. Have there not been people in your life that you've met? At some point in time, you thought, oh, my, this is, these are strange circumstances that we would meet one another. Oh, my, how is it that you came across this? Oh, my, that scripture that you shared with me was such an encouragement to me. That's a wonderful thing to think about. That's God's providential hand. God's hand of providence in the life of Joseph. So he says, I am controlling history. So we see, what is it? Three, four, Psalm 105, God takes us through sort of the history of Israel. And he says that, notice what he says about Joseph. He says that God sent Joseph ahead. Hold on a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on here a minute. God sent Joseph because we're used to when we saw the flannel graph stories of of Joseph as a kid, right? Wait a minute, his evil brothers were jealous and his evil brothers did what? God is controlling every aspect of life, even the good and the evil. And he sent him there. And it says, 
and he, until his time came to pass. So if you believe in a God of providence, then you look at life very, very differently. Let's move on. Um, how is this biblical worldview affirmed by GCC? Because, you know, a part of uh, the theme for this Sundays in July is really sort of what we believe as a church itself. And obviously we would affirm all of these things. We would affirm that there is one God, Deuteronomy 6. We would affirm divine revelation. We absolutely believe that. How do we believe this? Or why do we believe this? Well, because God's sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 103, 19, God's sovereignty rules over all. Why do we believe this? Because we believe in a God of holiness. Isaiah 6, 1 Peter chapter 1. Why do we believe this? Because we believe in a God of goodness. Psalm 107, and, and many of the Psalms tell us what? Oh, give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Greater love hath no man than this. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Love. Why do we believe this? Because at GCC, we believe in also a God of wrath. We look to the book of Revelation and many other places as well, and we will see God's wrath poured out on mankind. And that's something that should frighten all of us. Not the sense, because 1 John tells us that perfect love casts out what? Fear. I don't have to fear wrath. But I should have a healthy fear of God. And if you have a heart for anyone, you have loved ones who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have relatives that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're facing an eternity of wrath. And it seems like every time this word comes up, I use the opportunity to make this statement, and I will perhaps until the day I die, that we should all be like Whitfield. And when Whitfield said that whenever one preaches hell, they should preach it with tears. God's wrath. No woke movement, no movement of cultural Marxism, no unbiblical worldview is going to preach wrath. What do you hear in liberal churches and woke churches about God? You hear attributes, but which attributes do you hear? Love. Love is love. Who am I to say if they love one another? It is damnable. It is. It is one of the most unloving things that you can do to an individual. And someone may say, wait a minute, but you don't understand. I do understand from a biblical standpoint human nature. I've had relatives that have thought that they're, let me put it this way. I've had relatives that have lived that life. And the most loving thing that I could say to them is, you're wrong. And by the grace of God, I've seen in one person in particular, my mind, God's grace, they repented. And they were thankful. It's like, Uncle Carl, thank you for telling me. What a monster of a relative I would be by saying, well, love is love. God is love. And these woke churches who are essentially just trying to, I think, some of the motive is to simply increase numbers in their church, but all you're doing is increasing the numbers of goats who are in front of you listening. It's monstrous. It is. It is. Absolutely unacceptable. So, we believe these things. We believe in an absolute standard at Grace Church. Uh, we do not accept relativism. We do not accept a moral standard that is situational. 
We do not accept a moral standard that is culturally driven. No, culture must respond to the truth of God's word. The church should not be responding to the the changing cultural trends. Not at all. Um, So because we believe at this church in being an image bearer, and, and what basis is that? Psalm 139, just in part, because the psalmist says what? I'm fearfully and wonderfully what? Made. Jeremiah says that he was knit, you know, even in his mother's womb. What a beautiful thing to see little kids. And I was looking at uh, sort of like my adopted niece over here um, and their little baby and how she's grown since the last time I saw her. Oh, my. What a beautiful thing. And when you hear the sound of kids, um, you know, even if you're preaching, you hear a sound of kid out, a kid crying out. What a wonderful thing that is, because you say that is an image bearer that's there. That life must be protected. And when you see a mom, I saw someone at the, at the, um, the, the essential movie the other day. Some of the elders saw it and some other people. And she was really ready to give birth, like Ashley's ready to give birth right here. It's your day. She's ready to give birth. Out of her is an image bearer. Do we all agree with that? And see the monstrous values. And we re- remember we start biblically. Let's go back biblically. Isaiah 10 says what? You are enacting evil statues. What's an evil statue today? Abortion. And even more evil is the fact that you can take a child's life as they're about to give birth. It's evil. And here's another evil. You say, wait a minute. That's right, Hargrove. Give it, give it to him, Hargrove. You say, that's right. Well, let me also give you this as well, and this is for free. Another evil is when some young lady has had an abortion, and the only thing you can do is chide her and speak ill of her. And how can you take the life of an image bearer and you offer no compassion? And you, you offer no opportunities and you offer no gospel love. Evil as well. Because that's a pharisaical evil. Some, it's a pharisaical evil. And others, it's an evil of Molech. And what did Molech do? And we passed right by the Hinnon Valley um, outside the old city. And you could see in the valley of the Hinnon Valley where Molech would have been there. Children would have been tossed into the fire. And then you could go into the old city and you would have seen the Pharisees and all of their, their look. Both evils. Is that fair? Yeah, it must be. Yeah, they're, they're, it must be. You must say that is wrong, but Christ has the answer. You must say that's atrocious and you made it. That was a bad decision, but Christ can forgive. And there is a, there is a bomb, if you will, in Gilead. There is. That's Christianity. Yeah. Some people are just they're, just, they're just angry. And all you're ever going to get from them is you people that. But what's the solution? What do you do when someone is offered their kid to Molech? Are you there for them? Do you have answers for them? Are you, you, you going to be patient with them? Will you be understanding with them? So we can, wokeness is... A problem. But for the people who are truly have been awakened, 
that is us, how do we deal with the world around us? Yeah, Because I think there are some people, because that's why Scripture also says, you know, awake, awake, you sleeper. That you need to wake up and see what's around you as well. I see a hand. I said I would stop. Excellent. Okay. I'll repeat it. Go ahead. Okay. Sure. And that's fine. I can understand that. That's totally okay. But if we know that the underpinnings of it are about compassion, about um, the sin of slavery, it has had its effects. Those effects have reverberated throughout, you know, history. So if we know these things to be true, I'm not understanding how we can take woke wokeness and what we know of, you know, as I'm explaining okay. it, sure. how we can take that and look at it as it being a, um, its own form of, of religion, as it was stated in one of your slides, okay. or um, as its own thing, its own God that we're trying to worship. If we take everything else out of it and it comes down to people, people being looked at, a, a person can't, a black person can't mow their lawn. A black person can't. What was that now? A black person can't mow their lawn. A black person can't um, water their neighbor's flowers or what have you. These have been things that have happened in in the news without someone calling the police and that person going to jail. And these things that happen every single sure. day, all day, every day, it means that there is a problem, a historical problem that is still there. There's a lot okay. of implicit let me, bias. Let me interact with. Let me interact with you. For a moment. Okay, great. Fair question. It, it has to come up when it comes to this. That's why initially um, I'm trying to give, we'll call it graduations of levels here. Um, variance. That's why even the definition of charismatic, what does that mean? In some places it's just they're expressive in their worship. It doesn't mean that they have given in to the prosperity perversion. When it comes to wokeness, if in fact, which it cannot be proven by any means whatsoever, the woke movement can be isolated to simply compassion, who would have a problem with it? No one would. Because if you dialed back history, some people, if you kind of, if you could take, let's take someone from history, place him into today's society, and say, are there people in the past that would be considered woke now if we didn't have a full context? How do we understand, what was the heart of a William Wilberforce? society around me is doing something very different. Um, the way I understand scripture and God and, and a proper anthropology, that is how we understand man, how we understand a person as an image bearer, this evil must stop. And he, so he did whatever in his power to make it stop. Um, so the, there is no purity, there is no pure definition of wokeness, if you will. That's why I said I'm going to associate it with for the most part, cultural Marxism. Are there people like when it comes to charismatic churches, they're just in a, you know, a nice little Pentecostal church. And yeah, they do believe in certain things, but they would not give way to um, some of the ridiculous propositions of people today. Acceptable. But overall, the charismatic movement has become something. Uh, Prosperity gospel has become something. And so now we look at the majority of what it's become. The woke movement has become something. 
and it does have underpinnings on it, which I think last year I put its underpinnings on it, that would absolutely be contrary to a biblical worldview. If you could, by that definition you gave, if woke could be defined as compassion towards individuals who have undergone injustices in the past, who would fight against that? No one would fight against it, but it can't be. That's like today, even when people say to me, well, are you conservative? I don't know what that means. People that know me, they know that's my pattern. What does that mean, conservative? What, what, do you, what, what does that mean to you? No. If that's your definition of conservative, then I'm not. This is how I define it, my biblical convictions. So I understand your point, and I'd love to engage with you more about it because I think it's a reasonable dialogue to have, and I wish that we could like, do a two-day workshop on it. <laughs> would be wonderful. No, seriously, not all joking aside, maybe next year I'll have to do like part one and part two because it requires interaction with people and with questions. Yeah, I taught, actually it was called Social Justice Wokeness in the Church, so I had 16 weeks with students to interact with them and to talk and questions and books and what about this and what about that? How do we not throw the baby out with the bathwater? But also understand that water is polluted. You can't drink from it. Yeah, that well is polluted. And that's what I'm saying. Uh, the well is polluted. Um, could it have been different? It could have. But because of the underpinnings, inevitably what was going to happen, it was going to seep to the top. So, but reasonable to, to pose that, though. Okay? All right. So, let's move ahead. Um, let's talk about these four words. Give you a synthesis. Four words. Reality. How do we look at life itself? God created us with purpose, and the universe has a specific order and plan, right? The scripture tells us what? In the beginning, what? God created. Um, the scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, he is based in a creating God, and now he's created the universe and ourselves with a purpose, and our life is to find and discover that purpose and live within it. The second word is righteous. There is a set of moral standards created and expressed by God through his word. Amen? Um, John 17, 17, thy word is true, sanctify them in truth. And there's many other scriptures that would tell us God's word reveals a moral standard. That's what we believe and we must believe. Relish is our third word, relish. What does that mean? Those who recognize this divine order also will seek with their heart to relish these truths, to cherish them, and they become their values. Because you could even say values. What are the things that you value? Things that I value. Here are the things that I relish. That's what we need to understand. It's Psalm 1, if you will. Uh, what is the psalmist? What do we learn about the psalmist in Psalm 1? What does he say about the Word of God? Because we understand our proper reality we see a moral standard, what is right or righteous. Now we relish it, we cherish it, we strive for it. And then the fourth word would be this, responses. And when I say responses, now we must walk in obedience. If these things are true, we obey them. Jesus Christ said, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. How will I respond to these biblical truths? How will I respond to this really, this biblical worldview. Um, society doesn't have that. It doesn't. 
Uh, it is changing as cultural trends come and go. Let me walk you through the next part of it. Number one, the woke movement, are you, we could even substitute, as I said, an unbiblical worldview, denies a biblical view of God because it does not recognize the absolute authority of Scripture. There must be an authority. When you're witnessing to someone, friends, the starting point must be authority, established authority. Because if you don't establish authority, when you have an engagement with them, you have to go back to a source that is beyond your argument. The argument must come from Scripture. And because the movement itself does not recognize this divine authority, there are always going to be some ensuing uh, implications for that. It's, it's a natural. I don't believe this, therefore, I will behave this way and think this way. And all of you, all we need to do is go back and say to ourselves, okay, uh, before you recognize God's word for what it was, how did you behave? You behaved as a person without divine authority. And the same thing is true for society. Number two would be this. I'm going to try to hurry through it. It may take a question or two. Um, Number two, the woke movement denies a biblical view of God because it does not recognize the inherent sinfulness of man. See, now we go back to how do we understand man. If you understand man has a potential, and if we simply put man in the right environment, and that potential will flourish, and he will flourish, if you will, that's a problem. Because the starting point is wrong. Man is inherently sinful. That is, man will inherently, and he will, as a consequence, do things that are evil in society. This is why, why does it even have to be a movie or a real person uh, that is trying to rescue children from sex trafficking? Because man devises evils against other men. How can you go to such a dark place in life? Because man is inherently evil. And making, having a cultural revolution will not change that. It will not. Because often in some of the most sophisticated cultures, this evil will find itself. And I won't mention the place, but I remember being there some years ago. Very sophisticated place. Very educated place. In another part of the world. And reading articles, it essentially said, um, and it said, if you want your caviar, your champagne, and a boy, it'll only take you 20 minutes. Because they knew the issue that was in their culture. So it was, like, it was like ordering meal service. So you say to yourself, wait a minute, if we would just be more educated, perhaps that will change society. If we become more sophisticated, perhaps that will change society. If we're not like these ruffians in some of these urban you know, environments, then uh, things will be better. No, no, it just manifests itself differently, that's all. Yeah. Uh, number three, and because it rejects the eternal lordship of Yahweh. Lordship is incredibly important, and we establish that from going back to the idea that God's sovereignty rules over all. Therefore, that means he is to be Lord over your life and every decision you make in life. And then number four would be this. It consistently denies the exclusive nature of Christ's substitutionary death. How? Any movement, any movement that that does not see Jesus Christ as the hope of salvation and for one's future is a denial of his sufficient work on the cross and his resurrection. Number five, 
um, it welcomes a pluralistic view of salvation. Uh, that is a pluralistic view. What do I mean by that? Um, Jesus Christ said what? I am the way, I am the truth, and what? And what else did he say? What did he say again? No one except by, does that sound exclusive? Does that sound pluralistic? No, it does not. People are offended by that message. How dare you say? Who are you to say? Well, actually, let me answer that question, friend. I'm an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am to say. I'm a child of the living God. That's who I am to say. I've been commissioned by the Lord himself of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am to say. Yeah. So, number six. uh, It undermines the divine view of family. The divine view of family. As I said before, when did it happen that all of a sudden we don't understand what a male and a female is? The movement accepts this. Too much of it. Um, It was in... Uh, volume 14, yeah, Volume 14, Journal of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and it talks about now when it comes to um, a biblical worldview that gender is something that is taught by society, not a reality at birth. And I mentioned this two weeks ago, it is utterly ridiculous, and I say it to you again, utterly ridiculous that you can, for the same child, and I think it's cruel. I saw a picture of a woman who adopted two little kids, both boys, and they're dressed up in little pink dresses now. Utterly ridiculous that you can allow, allow a seven-year-old to determine their future on something that is so absolutely monumental because they feel like it at the moment or they think they are. It's cruel. And one wonders what's going to happen when some of these kids that have gone through these transition surgeries and and later on, they realize this is not right, the counseling that will take place in the church. Number seven, in many cases, the primary sin of Western society is racism. Certain movements, um, aspects of liberation theology, what's called black liberation theology, obviously um, the core tenets of critical race theory um, are going to see this as primary not man's rejection of the living God. Number eight, it fails to see the problem. I'm okay. I don't have bigotry in my heart, and they're wonderful people like that. They absolutely are. I mean, I think about my dad um, served in the end of World War II and in Korea. He knew life, and he knew that there were injustices in life, but never had this bitterness in his heart. And just the other day, I was with Eliana's um, commissioning as a Marine officer, her Granddad was a Marine, her uncle was a Marine, a cousin was a Marine, and the uncle got up and said, you know, you need to go and we're proud of you. And he says, protect those colors. Now, for someone like them, they may say, why protect those colors? Because of the injustices of the past. No, I protect the colors because I was born under those colors. And I will, and I think people that may have had or they have had injustices of the past will say, no. I will have my say in this country because of what my people went through. I will have my part in it. I will have my say. I will sacrifice just like everyone else. 
I will be willing to give my life just like everyone else. Everyone else, you will not take that privilege away from me. And that's how my dad saw it. That's how Mr. Scott saw it. Eliana's granddad, that's how our uncle saw it. Our cousins saw it. And that's how thousands and thousands and thousands of other men have seen it in women through history. No, we will have our part. And it was interesting to me because my dad, obviously at that time, I mean, you come back to a state still where you had to go to another restroom or use another fountain. But we just were not raised to focus on that. We were raised to think about what will be your contribution in the future. Okay? Number nine, the woke movement does this. The unbiblical view movement does this. It rejects a biblical theodicy. That is theodicy, the sense in which God, uh, there is evil in the world, and God controls that evil and uses it for his divine purposes. It is, in a nutshell, uh, you meant it for what? Evil, and God did what? Meant it for good. Um, And number 10, it provides hope and um, and the success of human development. It's the only hope. It's, the only, it's through God and Christ and thinking these things through.